Hey, welcome to In Doubt. This week we talk to author Mark Ward on Bible translation idolatry and his new book on the King James Bible. But before we get into it, I wanted to quickly let you know that we're hosting our second In Doubt live event this coming February 22nd, that's a Thursday, at 7 p.m. Our topic is, what is the Christian perspective on marijuana? Three speakers will speak for 15 minutes each, and then we'll have a live Q&A with the speakers. We'll look at the question of recreational and medicinal marijuana, look at what the Bible says, what culture says, and what effects marijuana has on the physical body. It's going to be a great event taking place in Cloverdale, British Columbia at the Clova Theatre. All the information you need to know can be found at indoubt.ca. This event is free, and it will also be live-streamed. If you update a translation, you're not altering the Word of God. That can be done. There are some cultic groups on the way fringes beyond Christianity that that do that. But mainstream Christian translations are not altering the Word of God. They're simply reflecting that English has changed. Hey, my name is Isaac, and welcome to In Doubt. If you're new to In Doubt, In Doubt seeks to bring the gospel to the many relevant issues of life and faith that we face every day, cultivating conversation. And one of those issues is the Bible. The Bible is a collection of 66 books written over a vast period of time by multiple authors in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, compiled in the first few centuries and are deemed as the Word of God. So you can understand that translating this project is a huge endeavor. Back in 1611, the King James Version came out, and this is the version that is literally, quote-unquote, king over all translations in many ways. Some people say that it's where God has sovereignly put his words. This week on the show, we talk with our friend Mark Ward, who is a genius when it comes to Bible translations. In fact, he's just written a book specifically on the King James Bible, which we'll get into. Our conversation is on his book, but we also touch on an issue I think many Christians have stumbled upon, either personally or with a friend or a family member, but it's Bible translation idolatry. So here's our conversation. With me today is Mark Ward. Mark received his PhD from Bob Jones University in 2012. And he now serves the church as a Logos Pro with Logos Bible Software down in Bellingham, which is kind of close here, so it's awesome to have him in studio. Thanks so much for being here, Mark. Thank you so much for having me, Isaac. Uh, Mark was with us uh, about a month ago now, just late last year, um, talking generally about Bible translations. Uh, Really interesting. I'd encourage you to check that out. Uh, It was episode 99, one before the 100 mark. So anyways, if you're interested, go check that out on our episode page. Um, We've also talked with Mark back late in 2016 uh, about the topic of marijuana. But anyways, uh, happy 2018. How are you doing? I am doing great. Rejoicing still in God's grace to me. That's so good. Awesome. Um, Perhaps some people didn't catch who you were last time or someone's listening on the radio for the first time and has no idea who you are. So who, who is Mark Ward? I am a Christian and a husband and a father and a theological writer for the last about 15 years. I blog mostly right now about Lagos Bible software and how to use it in Bible study, which I really love to do. And I love choral music in the Western classical tradition. And when I can play ultimate Frisbee, I do so. Really? Yes. I did not know that about you. I actually, today I would play, but I made a deal with my wife that I would stay on my diet. And if I altered, then I wouldn't get to go to Frisbee. And I ate a donut on Sunday. So I'm telling the whole world this as, you know, (laughs) it's kind of embarrassing, but it's true. That is awesome. Um, Ultimate Frisbee, I mean, 
you shouldn't have brought that up because I, I really do enjoy Ultimate Frisbee. I haven't done it for a little bit of time now, but in 20, I think it was 2013, my friend and I were in a league uh, in Surrey here, and it was so fun. We came in last, ah. uh, but we won the sportsmanship medal. Nice. So it was very, it was exciting, but... Uh, Been there, done that. There you go. Um, do you also play disc golf? Is that a thing for you? I've tried, but I, I, I love to throw the Frisbee long and have a receiver catch it. Mm. And in disc golf, that just doesn't happen. Yeah. Uh, you might be listening to this and you might be laughing at the fact that there actually is a very serious professional sport uh, called uh, Ultimate Frisbee. And I don't know, I know my pa- I don't know if you have friends or family that kind of make fun of you. Maybe your wife does a little bit, but I know my pastor, he's just like, why don't you bring Lassie on your team? And he just thinks it's the dumbest thing. But I'm like, man, you don't know how much. It is tough. It's a tough sport. It's intense. It's very intense. It's great workout. It is. It really is. Uh, But we're not here to talk about Ultimate Frisbee, although maybe we could do an episode on that one day. Um, Anyways, this week we are looking at the most traditional Bible translation, probably the most recognized uh, as well. Maybe maybe not the name, but at least some of the phrasing that you hear, some of the things said in movies or shows or whatever. And that is the King James Version. Um, Mark has just written a book and it's released now. It's called Authorized, the Use and Misuse of the King James Bible. He's done extensive research in, in that translation specifically and Bible translations in general. So anyways, uh, this is the version, if you don't know, uh, that sounds pretty kind of archaic because it was done, I could be wrong here, but 1611. Right. There you go. Um, and, you know, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You might have heard that maybe in movies or things like that. That is taken from the King James uh, Version. So before we get into some of the things about this version, can you just sort of tell us the story uh, behind the KJV? I know you talked a little bit about it uh, in our last conversation. But again, for those who didn't know, what's the sort of the story behind the KJV? Well, not too long before the King James Version came out, um, in, well, 200 years before it actually came out, 1408, the English-speaking church authorities actually banned Bible translation completely. But 100 years after that, so about halfway between that and the King James, William Tyndall comes along and starts singing this one note, namely, we need vernacular Bible translations and we need one in English. And he was definitely a follower of Martin Luther, and he gave his life, William Tyndall did for the cause of English Bible translation. Um, Shortly after his death, very shortly after, there finally was an officially sponsored English translation of the Bible, which basically took wholesale what Tyndall had done and finished it. That was done by Miles Coverdale. And then there was a succession of English Bible translations. One of them was the Bishop's Bible of 1568 and the King James Version in 1611, was actually an official revision of the Bishop's Bible of 1568 and through various historical and providential circumstances became the standard English Bible at basically for three plus centuries. Interesting. So when we consider some of maybe our, uh, the great kind of historical church heroes from 1611 on, would they probably have preached from the KJV? So I'm thinking of people like Charles Spurgeon and others. Yes, Spurgeon's a good example, and uh, Bunyan, you know, Mm. somebody said that if you pricked Bunyan, he would bleed Bible. Yeah. And what Bible was he bleeding? It was the King James. Interesting. The King James has had this absolutely massive influence on English-speaking Christianity, and it's been a good influence. It's also had an influence on English-speaking culture more generally. Right. So there are tons of phrases like, by the skin of one's teeth, am I my brother's keeper, that are still in the New York Times today. And I've I've read more than one non-Christian who got around to reading the Bible because they felt like they finally had to. They read the King James and realized, oh, (laughs) that's where all these phrases came from. Yeah. Interesting. 
It might have been in your book. It might have been from somewhere else. But I've heard it said that lots of our language today was helped formed by Shakespeare and the King James Version. Yeah, that that can't not be the case when (laughs) everybody is reading it. I mean, every home has Fox's Book of Martyrs, Pilgrim's Progress, and the King James Version for centuries. And even if you don't sit down to memorize anything from the Bible, you're going to memorize phrases from it and whole verses and passages by osmosis in that kind of culture. Yeah, for sure. That's really interesting. Now, when we consider the KJV and maybe someone who is not familiar with it at all, they have a Bible translation that is not the KJV and maybe they don't know anything about Bible translations. It should be said that the KJV was sort of the first uh, of the sort of English kind. Um, The first to really stick. Okay. Yeah. Not, Not the first, but the one that managed to be preeminent. Okay, that's good. Now, there is something called uh, KJV-only-ism, um, and it, I guess the question is, what, what exactly is that, and um, is, it, is it around today as much as, uh, as much as I guess we think? Well, when I passed over the border uh, to come here, I don't really know whether I left uh, King James Onlyism completely behind or whether it's strong in Canada. But my impression is that across the English-speaking Christian world, actually beyond the Americas even, King James Onlyism is a very powerful force. So whenever I post anything online uh, for Logos that mentions positively another Bible translation, pretty reliably somebody will come on there and make a comment saying that only the King James should be used. So why is that such a, why do people, why is that such an issue with some people? Why does it get their kind of level up so much? Well, let me first say, and that's a great question, I was raised in King James only circles. And my Christian school teachers, my pastor, my principal were gracious, godly people who loved me and shaped me deeply and gave me uh, an intense devotion to God's word. And their devotion to the King James translation in particular, I would say, arises out of something really good in their hearts, and that is they treasure God's words. What's gone wrong is that without really meaning to do so, they've equated a translation with the originals. They they confuse the, the issues. And so I talked to somebody like this not too long ago, a, a Bible college professor at a King James-only Baptist college in Oklahoma. And uh, he insists he doesn't believe that the King James, you know, is some sort of second act of inspiration like the Greek and Hebrew. But later I said, you know, would you change anything if you could? Like, you know, it uses the word bishops in the New Testament. You don't have any bishops, do you? And he said to me, well, you can't alter the word of God. I said, well, well, wait a minute. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If you update a translation, you're not altering the word of God. Okay. That can be done. We talked in the previous uh, discussion about the New World Translation. Yes, there are some cultic groups on the way fringes beyond Christianity (laughs) that that do that. But mainstream Christian translations are not altering the Word of God. They're simply reflecting that English has changed. A lot of these folks don't—if they acknowledge that English has changed, they'll all say, well, it's changed for the worse, and we don't want to dumb down the Bible. Right. But I go back to Tyndall, and I say— No, Tyndall recognized that people need to have the Bible in their language. And it's not anybody's fault that the King James translators did not use 21st century English. And it's not our fault that we don't understand their English 
anymore. Yeah. I, I won't say we misunderstand it completely, but the biggest point of my book is that there are many subtle ways in which modern readers simply won't even notice mm. that they're misunderstanding what the King James translators meant. There's not a single negative word about the King James in my book. Yeah. Because I think it was an, it was an excellent translation. Right, we right. just don't speak that language anymore. Yeah. And I want to get into a little bit more of the uh, the benefits and strengths of keeping it with yeah. us still to this day. I'll get to that in a second. But I thought it'd be interesting to share. Earlier this year, I was at a conference um, and I was uh, at the booth for Back to the Bible Canada because Indoubt is connected with Back to the Bible Canada. And uh, I was walking around a little bit on a break, and I came across a booth that was uh, sort of promoting a new translation. And I, I think many people uh, that, you know, maybe don't come out of KJV-only circles and maybe are younger, the idea of new translations is not a big deal. It's actually kind of exciting to be like, hey, this is great, a new translation. It's kind of new, you know. Uh -huh. And so I, I, I was talking to the, the fellow there that was promoting it, reading through some of the stuff. I was like, oh, this is really, really cool. And I walked back and uh, this other man came up to me and he didn't know that I was over there. And he started to, you know, talk to me about this other booth that's advertising this new uh, translation. And, you know, within a couple minutes, I understood, okay, that he is very much a diehard KJV, uh, you know, lover of, of the Bible. And, and he was explaining to me um, with this great angst, which I've never experienced before firsthand. And he was saying, look, uh, what does this say in, in John chapter whatever uh, about Jesus, uh, you know, lying or not lying or something like that? And he told me that this new translation makes it seem as though Jesus is lying. And then he said, what is that telling kids nowadays, you know, that you are allowed to lie because Jesus lied. But if you look at the KJV, it doesn't say that Jesus lied. And it it was interesting firsthand to actually experience this from from someone who was, it, you could see their, their attitude was quite heightened because right, of this. Right. Yeah. And we want, these are Christ's sheep. You know, we yes. want to exercise real care for them. And the fact is that King James only folks are in this one respect caught in a doctrinal trap. Mm. They are equating a translation with the Greek and the Hebrew as right. an ultimate standard. Um, and they are deeply distrustful of all other Christian attempts to either update the King James right or to produce a new translation. And it's very interesting, the King James translators themselves, um, they wrote a preface to their translation, and oh. it was extremely defensive. That's the feel you get throughout pretty much the entire thing, where they're basically mm. saying, hey, we're just trying to help here. Wow. Please don't kill us for updating a Bible translation. They, they even say, we're not condemning everything that went before. Yeah. We're just trying to make... A, of a good translation, yes. we're going to try to make a better one. And they they said, cavil, if it do not find a hole, will make one. And a cavil is like a petty objection. Okay. Um, Interesting. I, I think that Christians who are making petty objections like the one that you experienced um, need to step back a little bit and realize if you don't read Greek and Hebrew, then you're stuck. You have to trust somebody. Yes. And does the Bible itself give us an indication that we ought to be deeply distrustful of other Christians who are trying to teach us the Bible. We got to be wary. There are wolves, sure. Acts 20 says this. But is it is it really the case? That is the Does the lifestyle of these translators who've made the NIV and the ESV, the CSB, are these people who write our commentaries in our Christian books for us and our Christian bookstores, are they wolves? Are, are they right. trying to deceive us? That's a good point. Do they really think Jesus was a liar? No, it, it's a conspiracy theory, right. and everything is going to confirm a conspiracy theory. But mm -hmm. I would urge my fellow believers out there who have been tempted by this conspiracy theory yeah. 
just breathe some air here. Look at the people who've made these translations and tell me that they're nefarious tools of Satan who are trying to deceive the church. It's just not true. It's true. That's good. That's that's a good point. And and I guess it's important to know as well, maybe not to the same point as some people take the KJV-onlyism, but I, I think we can do this with other translations as well in, in our circles and sort of elevate it above others. That is a really wise point, Isaac. Um, we can form our tribes. I am of Peter. I am of Apollos. I am of the ESV. I am of the NIV. And pa- Paul definitively said, do not do this. Uh, and what he said, his answer to that was, all are yours. And in context, in 1 Corinthians 3, he's talking about all these Christian teachers. Well, who makes Bible translations? Christian teachers. So I go to all Christians who speak English and I say, all are yours. And if they say, well, that one has a flaw in it, I said, did Peter have any flaws? Yeah, look at Galatians 2. Did Apollos and Paul? Yeah, although they're not recorded, they had flaws. But God said, all are yours. Whatever is good in them is for you. That's good. Take advantage of it. That's so good. I love that. Um, I guess a good question would be, why should Christians not forget the King James version of the Bible? What are some of its benefits and strengths? And maybe to someone, I would even say myself, I didn't grow up with the KJV at all. I I grew up with the NIV and something the KJV, I learned about it later on, 10 or 11, 12. I'm like, oh, it's an older version of the Bible. But what what is something about the KJV that should be kind of treasured and cherished? Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, I did grow up on the King James and I do treasure it. It's in my heart. It'll never leave. I cannot make myself forget as if I would want to, and I don't want to. Um, I wrote in the first chapter of this book, I refuse to, to accept the idea that I'm either totally for the King James and against other translations, or totally against the King James and for other translations. I'm for all good English Bibles, and the King James was a good one. Yes. Not, it, it, there's nothing, all the complaints about modern translations that people make could be made about the King James, but in my book, I don't make any complaints about it. Um, because it's going, every translation is going to have some kind of, you know, weakness. Um, I'm just saying that English has changed over time. But right. because, um, because it is important, especially in our age of history is bunk, that's kind of the, we have our eyes always on the future in Western right. culture, right. you know, particularly in America, but I assume Canada would, you know, you said earlier, um, Here's a new translation. Oh, that sounds good. Well, that's a very Western value. Totally. To think something new equals good, Good. you know, new and improved. We don't even have to say and improved anymore. Um, It's good for us to maintain connections to our Christian past, Mm -hmm. um, to simply be aware. And if you're going to be an intelligent reader of Charles Spurgeon and of other English-speaking Christians of the past, to have read the King James at least once in your life, I would say probably twice in your life, um, is going to be very helpful because you're going to pick up allusions and verbal echoes that you wouldn't otherwise. It's just a way of honoring that very same verse. All are yours. Even Charles Spurgeon is yours. He's dead, mm-hmm. but his writings were given to the Christian church. They're not perfect, but they're for us. One way to make sure that we can still access them is by being familiar with King James verbiage. That's so good. And I think it. you can even, I mean, this is, we are talking about God's word, the Bible, but 
I think you can make a, a again a similarity or a comparison to Shakespeare. I mean, there have been modern modernized translations of of Shakespeare put into you know whatever theater and movies, and that's helpful and that's good. And right. you get the story, especially if you're younger, if you're 13 years old and you're, you're sitting down there watching Macbeth in its original maybe uh, play. It can be kind of difficult, but if it's translated, great, you get the story. But at the same time, it's beautiful to see. These actors today memorize this language that's so not used today. Uh, and it's kind of, it's beautiful to see. A lot of people uh, view the idea of updating the King James the way they view updating Shakespeare. They, they feel that it's some sort of massive insult to their intelligence. Um, they think that, you know, I should be able, if I have sufficient brains, to make myself focus and listen and understand. But linguists... And I'm a wannabe linguist. I love <laughs> linguistics. But a real linguist like John McWhorter, who's a major hero of mine, make the argument, and I make a very similar argument in my book, but about the King James instead of Shakespeare. Um, they make the argument, I make the argument, that language changes in subtle ways that only the most extreme scholars should be expected to keep track of. So um, a lot of people think, well, you're going to translate Shakespeare. Well, you, that means you're going to dumb it down. You're going to get rid of what McWhorter mm. points to as the poetry density and elevation of the language. But you don't have to get rid of any of those things in order to take individual words that simply don't mean what they used to mean, pull them out and replace them with modern equivalents. Um, and I show many examples of that in the King James Version. One of my favorites is... Um, now, you've read uh, at least parts of the book. Yes. I wouldn't expect you to have to read it all. but um, So you might already know this, but in 1 Kings 18, where uh, Elijah says on Mount Carmel to the Israelites, how long halt ye between two opinions, if the Lord be God, then follow him, if Baal be God, then follow him, something like that. But that word halt, I don't right. know if you remember reading this example, but maybe before you read, what did that mean to you? What would you say? Stop. Yeah. So when we use the word halt, you know, traffic ground to a halt, right. or halt. we yeah. might even think of an ancient, you know, medieval drama like halt, who goes there? Yes. Halt yeah. means stop. stop. Yeah. Right. Um, and I assumed that's what it meant my entire life until I was early 30s or something and writing on this. And I happened to check uh, another translation and it said, how long will you go limping between two opinions? And I thought, that's not right. What's going on here? <laughs> right. So I went back and checked the Hebrew, and the Hebrew is very, very clearly limp. So I'm thinking, oh, no, did the King James translators get it wrong? I, and I, all of a sudden I realized, no, they didn't get it wrong. They simply used the word that back then meant limp. Interesting. So in the Gospels, Jesus heals the halt and the blind. Halt really? would be like a word for lame. Um, so did the King James translators err? No, absolutely not. They chose a perfect word for their time. But because of the inevitable process of language change, we all necessarily misunderstand this. And I have checked with dozens of educated people who read Greek and Hebrew, who grew up on the King James. And I found two people, one a Hebrew expert and one somebody who just got lucky, right. who realized what halt meant in that passage. Yeah. Same thing with Shakespeare. There's a lot of these just little points where... Um, you can't get it unless you're an extreme nerd expert. And that's not what we want to give to people. We don't, we don't want to demand that someone become an extreme nerd expert right. to read God's words. Exactly, yeah. We want God's words to be as accessible as possible. Peter said some of the things that Paul said are hard to understand. Fine. Mandrakes and Sheol 
and uh, obscure minor prophets, they're always going to be difficult, even in the best translation. But we don't want to add unnecessary difficulties in people's way of reading God's words. That's so good. That's awesome. Um, as we finish up here, Mark, what, when we think, consider your book, Authorized, The Use and Misuse of the King James Bible, what, what really was your, your purpose of writing this book? Like, your, what's your prayer for as, as people read this book? I am specifically praying about this and I, I would like to see some people's minds changed. And I'm not just talking about King James onlyism, although I, I do pray that the Lord would rescue my brothers and sisters whom I love so dearly from a situation in which they are reading God's words in a language they can't understand. They're handing God's words to uh, their children and to evangelistic contacts in a language that they can't fully understand. Right. I, I want that to be uh, done with. Um, I, I, William Tyndall, he was said to always be singing one note. And I've discovered at least over the last couple of years, that's me too. Somehow I'm channeling William Tyndall and, uh, <laughs> I want the boy who drives the plow to know the scriptures better than a bishop. So good. And so I want people reading the Bible. That's like the evangelical quote unquote sacrament, you know? That's the thing we're all supposed to be doing every day, and I'm just living out what I was taught. I And then, uh, positively speaking, I want people to take advantage of what I always call the embarrassment of riches in our modern Bible translations. And if any of us is suspicious of the major translations that are sitting in the Christian bookstore shelves, then basically we're saying, God, here's this riches that you've offered me, but I'm not interested. And I'm saying, I've done this since I was 18 years old. I spent 50 bucks of my own money, which was an incredible amount back then. Oh, totally. On Still. <laughs> a comparative study Bible that had the New American Standard, the NIV, the King James, and the Amplified Bible. Interesting. And yeah. man, did I fill that thing up with my notes. And did I get so much benefit. And I'm just jealous for the people that I love to yeah. get the same riches. Right. Share in my joy. Yeah. Don't be suspicious. That's my motivation. That's so good. And even on a simple note, as I, as I consider this, that, you know, there are a lot of young adults today that, I, I mean, I guess the point needs to be said, you could grow up uh, in some rural area and only have the NIV and learn God's word and die and live forever sure. with Jesus without yes. even touching the KJV, right. of course. So just get that out of there, obviously. But there's something to say about like the, the, the richness of the, the beauty that's sort of uh, translated as the KJV. It, it's beautiful. Like even like that one verse that I read in Matthew, just it's, there's a beauty to it. And even just for young adults who are creatives and are Eng like interested in English, like yeah. it's just, it, there's, a, there's a beauty to read it. Uh, just a, it's just fun. <laughs> even the atheist Christopher Hitchens said, and Richard Dawkins too, that um, you're basically a barbarian if you've never read the, uh, the King James. Wow. However, God did not choose an archly uh, literate Greek and Hebrew. He chose the common language, and right. we should too, for our Bible translations. That's so good. Uh, thank you so much, Mark, for, again, your time today to come in the studio once again. Um, like we've just been talking about, Mark's just written this brand new book called Authorized, The Use and Misuse of the King James Bible. It's out now, which is very exciting. Uh, I'm going to be posting some links on the episode page for you to find that. But if you're listening on the radio right now and you maybe will forget, uh, Mark, where can people find find this book? It's right up there on Amazon and also at lexampress.com. So there are print copies and digital copies available. Very, very cool. Anyways, thanks so much, Mark. Thank you for having me, Isaac.
That was Mark Ward. And like I just said, you can pick up Mark's book when you click the links in our episode page. Find Out is a ministry that you can stand up for, as in you believe and support the mission to bring the gospel to issues of life and faith, then I encourage you to consider and pray about giving financially. Whether $5 or $1,000, everything very much helps, since everything we do is supported by those who believe in our mission. If you'd like to donate, just click the donate button when you go to indoubt.ca if you live in Canada, or indoubt.com if you live in the States. Connect with us throughout the week on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. Well, I'm Isaac, and next week we hear from author Jason Dusing on hope in an age of cynicism. See you then. Indoubt Ministries exists to bring a biblical perspective into the relevant issues of life and faith that young adults face every day. For more information, check out indoubt.ca if you live in Canada and indoubt.com if you live in the U.S.